Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. The Biden administration is here. What does that mean for the state of the media? Today, I'm joined by journalist and my friend Piers Morgan. This is episode 11. From his time at CNN and the CNN of today, to his start in the media world working for Rupert Murdoch, to Twitter and Instagram, we start with the state of America and the media as the Biden era begins. I wanted to start where we are in America right now because we're, you know, just uh, just getting started with the Biden era. And uh, you had a column recently that, uh, as as you often do, have uh, quite colorful language to it. Let me read this for a second here. Uh, you said that the uh, re- Uh, that Trump was repulsively graceless shame this morning, tried to destroy democracy with his rabble-rousing lies and disgraceful refusal to accept the result of the election. That was the exit of Trump. Now we enter Joe Biden. I want to start here. As as we start this era, particularly as we start the era with the media, um, which is kind of what we Mm. cover on the show, what do you think we're we're walking into, both from a business perspective and I guess from a uh, maybe from an editorial perspective? We can kind of take those one by one. Well, I think it's been a fascinating four years in many ways, but not least for the media. I think one of the downsides of Trump going to war with the media and calling them fake news and enemies of the people is that many journalists who ought to remain impartial, however much they're provoked, have shown pretty partisan colours and highlighted the sort of intrinsic problem with the American media that you've repeatedly observed and commented on, that there are mostly liberal people working in the media. And under the Trump administration, the Trump four years, they many of them have been incapable of, of hiding back their personal bias. And the problem for that is what happens now? You know, do they go back to being impartial just because one of their own is president, Joe Biden, a Democrat, a liberal? Um, do they put him through the same scrutiny they put Trump through, which was pretty unprecedented, yeah. you could argue? Yeah. Um, and you know, where where does this all wash out? And what happens to the news organizations and late night shows and newspapers, which for the last four years, have made huge capital and huge amounts of money from 24-7 Trump bashing, almost to the exclusion of anything else. You know, you read out a uh, a particularly savage column of mine against Trump because I completely lost my patience with him towards the end and thought what he was doing was extremely dangerous, as we then saw at the US Capitol. But I've written about 120, 130 columns throughout the Trump period as candidate and president. And about half of them have been negative and half have been positive. Right. Now, you know, that to me is where journalists strive to be. If you if you look at your tweets going back four years and you're 100% <laughs> dwelling on the negative with Trump or 100% dwelling on the positive, uh, then you've not been doing your job because clearly some things he did were things that you could be supportive of and other things you could criticize. So I think we, we need to get back uh, everywhere to impartial journalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I want to talk about, obviously, the uh, maybe one of the bigger uh, spotlights in the in the problem that you've brought up, which is uh, our former home at CNN. And I also want to talk about your relationship with Trump. But but going back to, to one point you, you, you bring up there, which is uh, about the scrutiny that came of Trump. And I, and I have to say, one of the things that I think really 
maybe a positive to come out of the Trump era in the media is that they that the media kind of grew some balls. You know, there, there was this yeah. this adversarial relationship with power, which is the way it should work. You know, particularly when it comes to government, but but really all kinds of power. Um, and if that wasn't really at the forefront of the the general uh, mainstream media or establishment media before, now now it is. Uh, and, and so I I do wonder if those same you know the lessons learned uh, of okay this is what we can do, uh, and then maybe this is the kind of stories we can get out of it, and this is the interest we might get from an audience if that does continue into a very different administration coming in. Yeah, I mean, I think that the job of all journalists is to hold government to account. You know, I've been doing this pretty aggressively over in the UK with our government, yeah. who've had a, a similarly disastrous handling of the pandemic to the Trump administration. And, you know, we make a lot of headlines with it. And, you know, people say, oh, you're just bullying the ministers. No, I'm not bullying them. I'm holding them to aggressive account uh, because the decisions they've been taking have been disastrous in many cases and many thousands of lives have been lost as a consequence it couldn't get more important frankly than in a pandemic for journalists to be very vigorous if not aggressive in the way they hold all governments to account everywhere in the world because you know i've always taken the view that if you do that and you do hold their feet to the fire a you work out who are the more competent members of the government, because they're the ones who can handle the fire. But B, you oft, often force better policy by giving them the proper scrutiny that their own policy ideas uh, should have and making them think again about decisions they're taking. You know, that's the role of the journalist, is to hold them to account, but also to shape correct and better policy through that account holding. Yeah, it, it does seem like, you know, you you kind of came up through maybe the British tabloid world. And there's there's a certain sensibility, I think, that is, uh, you know, you you, you want to have that adversarial relationship. And, and actually, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, and we're talking about social media later also, because one of the things I, th I think that's been a challenge for the media in recent years is they're, they're so sensitive to any sort of like mild criticism or to, you know, maybe getting someone in power mad at them. Uh, yeah. where, where I feel like you've been sort of immunized to that through the way that your, your career started. Well, I think the, I mean, look, there are some massive egos in American media in particular. There's some massive egos in the UK media. You're talking to one. Um, <laughs> but what I've never done is if, I've never come at it from a politically partisan way. And the example I would give is when you and I were working at CNN and we went after the gun lobby after Sandy Hook, for example. You know, I wasn't doing that because I was a liberal trying to attack Republicans. I was doing it as somebody, frankly, who came from a country with no guns, who found it unconscionable that the reaction to, you know, a load of school children being blown to pieces in their classroom was to do absolutely nothing. In fact, the only response was to encourage people to have more guns. Right. Um, but I didn't see that as a politically partisan debate. Um, what's what's been happening in America, which I think is problematic everywhere, including the UK, is that social media has made everybody very tribal. I've just done a book called Wake Up about all this, where you know people no no longer value nuance or debate in the old way they used to, and it's permeating through every aspect of society where people just are not prepared to listen to other views and would rather bunker down in their tribe and spray gun anyone on anything who dares to contradict what they believe. But that's not what a democracy should be about. You know, America and Britain are two of the great democracies in history. 
And we've got to get back, as Joe Biden said, I thought, in his very good speech, uh, his inauguration speech, we've got to get back to an ability to have civil discourse again, because otherwise we never get anywhere. Later, what's CNN doing right and wrong, and what do they do next? But now, what is Piers Morgan's relationship with Donald Trump like right now? You were close with Trump uh, for, mm-hmm. for a long time. Uh, when was the last time you talked to him? And, and what do you think the relationship will be like now that he's out of office? Well, I, you know, I knew Trump for a long time, long before he ever uh, ran for office. I knew him from uh, about 2006, I first met him. And then I, I competed in and won his first series of Celebrity Apprentice in 2007-8. And that's when I spent hours and hours every night opposite a boardroom from this guy. And I got to know him very well, you know, several hundred hours of listening to him, watching him in action, uh, unfiltered and unedited. And I liked it. You know, he was, I've got to say, far more charming uh, in that boardroom for hours on end than he has ever been as president. He's been far more aggressive and combative as president. Um, but I got an insight into what he's like. He was always very good to me. He gave me many interviews um, at CNN, many interviews. The irony being at the time that CNN didn't want to put him on air and we used to have to fight to put him on air. And then, of course, when he ran for president, they basically gave their airtime to him right. to help get him elected. And then rather like Dr. Frankenstein began to regret very quickly unleashing the monsters that they created. So there are lots of ironies there. But um, I, you know, I got on well with Trump. I knew his flaws. I had read his books. I knew the kind of guy he was. He was a an embellisher, a bullshitter, as we would call them in, in the UK. But he, he was sharp. He was funny. He was loyal, if you were loyal to him. Uh, he was very charismatic and a very interesting person. Uh, it made him a huge TV star. And it made him a very compelling political candidate. And against all the odds, he won. And he and I stayed in touch a lot, really, um, over all that time, right to the point that the pandemic really began to grip in, in the United States. And I began to watch him at his very worst, where rather than take it seriously and show proper leadership and show empathy to the people who were who were dying in their droves, he reverted to his very worst traits of narcissism, making it all about him, disbelieving the science, um, you know, uh, furious, I think, from the very start that he could see this was a threat to his re-election because before the pandemic, I would have put good money on him being comfortably re-elected. Yeah, um, and I could well. see yeah. him... Yeah. And, you know, he didn't understand that if he did a good job leading the country through a very difficult time in the pandemic, then he probably would have helped his re-election chances even more. Instead, I think he let down the American people with his woeful handling of it. And it came to sort of nadir for me back in April last year, I think it was, when he, you know, suggested using bleach to cure coronavirus. And all I could think was the president of the United States should not be airing crazy theories from his podium to the world and to America, uh, because it's incredibly dangerous to do that if these if these theories and potential cures have not been properly tested. So I wrote a column, very strongly worded column, telling him to shut the bleep up because I thought that his batshit crazy ideas were going to get people killed. And he unfollowed me on Twitter overnight, which was, of course, his most sort of, I guess, in his eyes, the worst punishment <laughs> he could possibly inflict on me because I was one of only about 45 accounts that he followed. Um, and yes. most of those were his, either his businesses or his family. So I, I'm certainly the only Brit. So I got unceremoniously torched from Twitter. Um, and then I didn't have anything more to do with him and was very critical of him in many columns after that. And then about a week before the election, um, I got a call from him 
uh, out of the blue, uh, just from the White House switchboard. And on he came. Uh, he'd see me on Fox and Friends, uh, you know, being pretty critical, but also saying, if you want to hear some advice from me about how you can get reelected, even at this stage, then give me a call. So he did. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, and we had a half hour conversation. It was very simple. We, you know, we've always got on very well. We used to talk a lot. We used to talk every three weeks or so on the phone. Uh, so it was nothing unusual for me. I gave him a few home truths about the way I thought he'd handled things. But I said to him, look, it's not too late. But the one thing you're not showing the American people is any empathy. And if you don't show the people empathy when they're dying in such huge numbers, um, you've got no right to be reelected. You don't deserve to be. And I thought he listened, and I thought he was going to, you know, spend that last week doing uh, what he hadn't been doing properly, which was show Americans empathy. But he didn't. He just reverted back to type. And I think that the American people at the ballot box punished him uh, predominantly for his his bad handling of the pandemic. Yeah, and it, and in, honestly, I mean, you know, we look back at this, and there's been all these comments about election fraud and everything. But it, it was so it was really a razor thin election. I mean, it was in, in many ways, yeah. it was closer than than 2016, and just you know, three states, sixty thousand votes or so switched the other way or or came out, and you know, it, it I think was, he'd have, honestly he would have walked it if he had handled that pandemic better. Right. Um, but I think that that was the tipping point for many people, and well, I think that um, and I think that he paid the price for it. And then, of course. You know, to me, the most egregious um, thing that he did in his entire presidency was was refuse to accept the fair democratic result of the election. Right. And his persistent lying after that about widespread fraud led to the horrific scenes of insurrection at the Capitol, which was one of the worst things. You know, I love America, I love Americans, and I love democracy. And to watch that happening and to see thousands of people whipped into a violent, murderous mob by a president simply refusing to accept democracy uh, was a very, very shameful thing to watch. Yeah, no. And I, I agree with you on that. I I, I, then, I also, though, worry a little bit about the overreaction to it. And and, and one of them to me uh, is is what's happening in, in the world of tech censorship. And I, yeah. I, I, I look at something like, um, you know, I saw a tweet recently that, you know, Donald Trump, obviously, um, shortly after that, uh, not right after that, but shortly after that was was, you know, completely banned uh, from Twitter, uh, indefinitely suspended uh, account, you know, just completely gone. And someone said recently, oh, you know, I, there really hasn't been any downside to that. You know, there hasn't been like I, I, I don't know if that's true. And, and I, I wonder if you think that that was the right move in, in completely banning him and, and what reverberating effects that may have beyond I think just I think Trump. It's, Yeah, I, I think it's a very complicated issue, actually, because I think that Twitter were put into an almost impossible position, particularly Twitter, which was his preferred form of communication, because they'd seen the power of his lies about having the election stolen manifest itself in a riot at the Capitol where people died. You know, a police officer was was clubbed to death. Um, and to allow the, the person that incited that mob, certainly in their, in their eyes, uh, he had incited them and told them to go down there and fight and stop the steal, uh, to allow that person to carry on whipping up that mob in the run-up to the inauguration, I think was a clear and present danger to, to public health. And I don't think they had a lot of choice. Now, the question then becomes, should the ban be permanent? Right. And 
where is the consistency? And interestingly, as we're speaking, the, uh, one of the accounts of the Ayatollah Khomeini in, in Iran, the supreme leader, has been suspended over a direct threat he made to Donald Trump. But his other main account remains up, and that was one in which I believe uh, he made threats against Israel, for example, oh, yeah. threats which remain on the platform. Well, I read a column saying you, you can't have that. You can't have Trump somehow deemed to be more dangerous um, than the supreme leader of Iran who's threatened to wipe out 8 million people in Israel. So I think there has to be consistency. But I do have some sympathy with the social media platforms in that I think, you know, ultimately they were built on freedom of speech. But the First Amendment does not allow people to whip up violent insurrections. There are limitations to freedom of speech, and they have to be observed if the consequences of people's rhetoric is that there's going to be violent uprisings in which people are going to get killed. So I think they were in a difficult position, but there has to be a level of consistency. And yeah. you know, I, I think they're all wrestling with where that line is. My bigger issue, actually, was not the suspension of Trump. Uh, over that. It was actually the way that the uh, Twitter banned the New York Post yeah. from its platform for simply promoting what seemed to be a completely true story that was never denied about Hunter Biden's laptop um, because they wanted to effectively suppress that information in the run-up to an election. I thought that was a far more serious invasion of free speech and completely unacceptable. And of course, they did back down but only after two weeks. And, you know, I just think that the idea of a tech company suppressing a newspaper from being able to promote a true story about uh, the family of a man who wants to be president, I found that a very alarming development. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I and I, I, I actually see the I see the story, you know, the, the, the argument of Trump being, you know, taken off Twitter until, you know, un, un, until the inauguration, for example, or until a certain point. Um, but this sort of permanent expulsion seems seems crazy. And, and part of it actually got me thinking about your book, um, Wake Up, which which was excellent, mm -hmm. uh, which you wrote, thanks to the explosion of social media fueling echo chambers where people only expose themselves to singular thought processes that they already agree with. We've regressed as a world back thousands of years to the days where we, when we existed in tribes that rarely met other tribes. And, you know, I totally agree. And that's 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 a problem that social media has fueled as a platform, but that the people that use it have have sort of you know, done themselves. I mean, you, you know, you can also curate your feed to have, uh, you know, to, to go beyond your tribe. But but when social media makes that that determination, as you talk about the the hypocrisy that they that they use to to. OK, this one's allowed. And the New York Post, you know, Hunter Biden story. Now nah, we're going to just take that one. So you can't even link to it. Mm. You know, when they start to do that, that's that's sort of puts their finger on on the scale there and in, in yeah and i've never seen them i've never seen them do that um with a, a left-wing right newspaper story so again there's inconsistency driven by their individual personal political leanings you know it's, it's no secret that most of the people who work at high level in tech companies are liberals but they're showing their colors too much and they're being politically partisan that's where i have a real problem um so i, I can get that there was a real and present danger to public health uh, and the potential for violence by allowing Trump to continue tweeting that the election was stolen from him. And he was clearly indicating, even after the Capitol riot, that he'd still believe that to be the case. I can see why they would feel compelled to take him down 
for that. Um, although I think there remains an issue about whether it should be permanent or not. Right. But I, I think the, the the attack on free speech involving that New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop, that to me was a very dangerous moment. That that crossed the line. Yeah. And, and as you write a lot in your book, uh, what is liberalism? It, you know, it, it, it is liberal, even if you feel like you are a, you know, liberal, you lean towards the Democratic Party, is taking that off a liberal act, uh, the Hunter Biden story? Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I would think not. What was it like to take over Larry King's seat at CNN? And what's CNN doing right now? That's next. But first, another edition of A Media Tell. In poker, there's something called tells, little signs and signals that show what a player has in their hand. In journalism, there are tells too. Here's another example. Often, when the media has to issue a correction at the bottom of an article, what's revealed is more than just an updated bit of information. You'll find as you come across corrections that the incorrect information often leans in a certain direction, usually correcting a negative point about someone on the right or correcting a positive point about someone on the left. A recent CNN correction was a hilarious and revealing example of this. In a story by four different reporters headlined How a Swift Impeachment Was Born Under Siege, CNN purported to lay out how Democratic representatives began texting each other during the riot at the Capitol and hatching a plan to impeach President Trump again. The star of this plan was Representative Ted Lieu, a California Democrat who is a mainstay on cable news. He apparently huddled with another congressman who texted a third that it was time to begin the impeachment proceedings. In the second paragraph of the story, it currently reads... Grabbing a pro-bar energy bar in his office, Lou said he and his chief of staff called the top aide to a Rhode Island representative while wandering the halls and asking if they could hunker down in his office in the Rayburn House office building. But that's not what it said before. No, see, the correction that is now on the story says... Correction, a previous version of the story misstated that Representative Ted Lou grabbed a crowbar before leaving his office. He grabbed a pro-bar energy bar. Yes, when originally reported, it was that Ted Lieu grabbed a crowbar and began wandering the halls during the riot at the Capitol. Right, Ted Lieu and his crowbar, like he's in an episode of The Walking Dead, hunting zombies or something. Somehow four different reporters, and who knows how many editors, saw this, and no one thought it sounded completely ridiculous. Why? Because he's a Democrat, half of the D.C. Bureau probably knows personally from cable news green rooms or some party. It's the intermingling between the media and the political elite. So when you're writing a story... Making Lou out into the hero of the impeachment sequel, it sounds a lot better if he's ready to beat some rioter's ass with a crowbar than if he just grabbed a snack. We'll get back to Piers in a minute, but the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, no subscription, no credit card. No trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Piers Morgan. Let's, let's go to CNN, because you and I um, met at CNN, or on the, on the way to mm-hmm. CNN. I, I worked for, uh, for Piers Morgan tonight. Uh, that was my first uh, role there as a digital producer. Um, great time. Uh, I, I want to start with your move to CNN, because I think it, it surprised a lot of people. I had Before I started, I watched your life stories, interviews with Simon Cowell and uh, uh, Gordon Brown in ways that I, I would say, you know, I never seen interviews like that. And I think that, you know, you're mm-hmm. just an exceptional interviewer and unique in that space. But when you got, talk, tell me about the process of getting to CNN and then what it was like when you kind of walked in the door there uh, the, of, of this gigantic organization and you're now, you know, the 9 p.m. host uh, taking over for Larry King. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a very surreal time for me um, because Americans didn't know me as an interviewer at all. They only knew me as a judge on America's Got Talent, which is a very different discipline, obviously. Um, but you had seen some of the life stories and the CNN hierarchy uh, saw a load of them. My, my late great manager, John Ferreter, yeah. um, made them watch a few of the ones that you've just re referred to. And they're long-form interviews taking place over sometimes three, three and a half hours, edited down to one-hour shows about people's lives. And they're very in-depth, they're very probing. And I think they saw somebody who, you know, was certainly a skilled interviewer, and I don't want that to sound immodest, but I've had a lot of experience at it, and I think it's one of my my better talents is is the longer-form interview. Um, and somebody who was equally comfortable interviewing celebrities and politicians and members of the royal family or business tycoons, whoever it may be, which, of course, was the space that Larry King dominated for 25 years. Exactly, so yeah. um, I went and had some meetings with the top people at CNN, and it was a sort of strange experience because I went in to do big interviews, and that was certainly how we started. You know, Oprah Winfrey was our first one. The first two weeks, we had big interviews, whole shows with Howard Stern and Donald Trump and some of the Kardashians and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And these, this is what I thought I was going to be doing the whole time, which were big sit-down interviews with the biggest names in the world. And then um, the Arab Spring hit us in early 2011, right. soon after I went on air. And I remember being in Los Angeles, having just interviewed, I think, Janet Jackson in <laughs> Chicago or something. And as I got off the plane, my uh, EP, Jonathan Wald, said to me, okay, we're going live uh, tonight uh, from Eat with the uh, uprisings in uh, Libya and Egypt. I went, okay. <laughs> I said, this is a good time to tell you. I said that although I ran a daily newspaper for 10 years, I've never anchored a second of live breaking news and he looked at me and he went that's good to know that's good to know now fortunately jonathan had been steeped in experience his yeah. dad had been the president of mc nbc news he himself had been in the today show and other uh, organizations and, and shows doing lots of breaking news so i was in very safe hands but i remember sitting in the chair in los angeles which Larry King had used for so many years and hearing the countdown to my first ever live breaking news show with, you know, a lot of very complicated names in <laughs> Libya and Egypt and a lot of correspondents I had no experience conversing with. Uh, and we got through it and it went pretty well. And I think I didn't let anybody down. And at the end of it, it was sort of pour myself a large whiskey, take a deep breath and go, okay, I can do breaking news. And then after that, there was just an endless, endless supply of huge breaking news from the death of bin Laden to uh, to then the mass shootings in Aurora and Sandy Hook and so on and the election. And uh, I found myself doing very little of what I went to do, which were the big interviews and far right. more news shows. And I really enjoyed that. You know, I used to run a, a daily, big national daily newspaper. So I, I was very uh, used to that. And I, I enjoyed it very much. But I also went through a weird uh, hierarchical saga at cnn with three presidents in three years yeah um which john, john each with their own ideas mark whitaker yeah. jeff zucker yeah yeah and john klein was the one who brought me in and he wasn't even there when i went first on air so um there was a series of them culminating in jeff, jeff zucker who had been my boss at, at nbc with america's got talent who i always got on very well with um and yeah so it became a very different show and it became a news show rather than an interview show and that wasn't really what I wanted to do when I went to CNN. And in the end, uh, Jeff, he picked up my extra fourth year. And then um, uh, we went through a period. I remember when that, that plane went missing and literally every hour of 
of seeing them for about 10 weeks. The black hole. Missing yeah. yeah, and I, I felt a slight black hole myself. I was like, this isn't really what I want to be doing. <laughs> I, I, I came here to interview Oprah Winfrey and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and I'm sitting here talking about a missing plane with the same people every night. I actually love week that missing plane week. story personally, but I, I get, I get oh, what you're I know, saying. I know, I know, I <laughs> know. If you've got to be really into missing planes to enjoy that kind of coverage. Um, so Jeff and I had a very civilized chat, and he suggested that I come off doing the daily show and he offered me a new two-year deal in which i would do uh, 20 big interview interviews a year in two series of 10 and i was very tempted and if i hadn't been offered the job at the dailymail.com to do columns which was a very lucrative deal they offered me because they were very keen to to get their traffic up and thought that I could do that for them, I think I might have accepted it. And I came very close to accepting it. And in which case, I would have carried on at CNN not doing a daily news show about missing planes, but I would have been doing what I love most, which was doing the big set-piece interviews. But in the end, I decided not to do that. And we left on very good terms. I've always stayed in touch with Jeff, get on very well with him, never had any problem with it all. Um, yeah. And uh, I've always been a big fan of CNN. What's been interesting to me, and I think it has for you, is the rules were so different. The rules of engagement when we when we were there were so different about the, the kind of broadcasting that the anchors were allowed to do. <laughs> yeah. And they some of them have become nakedly partisan. And that's a, a choice for them. Uh, but we weren't allowed to do that when we were there. They were very, very hot on none of the anchors showing any political bias at all. And I'm going to say that... Um, the more opinionated some of them got, you know, Anderson Cooper, for example, could barely hide his constant sneering about everything to do with Trump and anyone who ever voted for him. Yeah. And I found that really clouded and coloured his integrity as an impartial broadcaster. Conversely, who did we all turn to and trust when it really mattered, i.e. with the election? And it was Wolf Blitzer and John King, uh, and I would add Jake Tapper to that list. It were the people who uh, were you know, not not showing a personal political bias, but at least attempting to do what CNN was founded on, which is impartial news. So the challenge for CNN going forward, I think, is you know, the people that I really think are great there, people like Caitlin Collins who are coming through, these yeah. hotshot reporters, Phil Mattingly and others, you don't sense any personal bias in their reporting. Um, but some of the others, I think, have crossed the line, which is very difficult once you cross it, to come back over that line and start being impartial again. Because if they start being completely impartial with Biden, it will look like they're only doing it because they basically <laughs> right. support him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a few things there. I think, first of all, uh, I don't think it's, it's there's any coincidence that Jim Acosta was removed from chief White House correspondent and Caitlin Collins was put into chief White House correspondent. Uh, I think that was sort of a clear choice there uh, on on what, you know, what the, what the future of Jim Acosta looks like there. Um, but no, you know, the other thing you, you mentioned, like the move towards opinion, like Anderson Cooper and I, and certainly others. I also wonder about during the, the Trump years, there was a loosening of standards. It felt like I remember everything had to go through like Rick Davis and the and the standards team and legal. And we need two sources and maybe yeah. three sources. Yeah. Well, now they're running with all these Russia collusion and Mueller stuff. And it's got one I anonymous the source. Collusion. Yeah, the Russia collusion thing for me was a, a big miss by CNN because they all got completely carried away and were doing 24-7 coverage for, you know, two years. 
And then they had the gall to start whining about the Hunter Biden laptop story, which had a long a gestation period of about a month. Um, you know, saying we can't obsess over that. We obsessed about Russian collusion, which turned out to be a nothing burger. And Trump was acquitted because there was no actual evidence that he had ever colluded with the Russians to fix that election. So the whole thing was hooked on a, on a false premise. And I felt a lot of them just got far too carried away and sucked up into chasing ratings because it was driving ratings, but at what cost to the brand? And the, the truth is CNN's in a fantastically powerful position now. The ratings are through the roof. I think Jeff Zucker's brilliant as a TV producer. I, I do too, yeah. I'm running a network. I've got no criticism of Jeff at all. I just think some of those anchors have got to look at themselves in the last four years and think, is that what CNN should be about? You know, I was really struck by how brilliant Wolf and John King were in the election and by correspondents like Caitlin Collins. They were the ones that really resonated with people because they were completely trustworthy because you knew that or you, you didn't know whether they had a horse in the race or not. And that's where I think CNN's at its best, because otherwise, if they drift into partisan uh, uh, anchoring and reporting uh, and they show their colors too much, where do Americans go for genuinely impartial coverage? They can't go to Fox. They can't go to MSNBC. You've got NPR still, but there are very few outlets. Now, in the UK, by contrast, we have the BBC, we have Sky News. These are genuinely impartial news networks. Right. If you watch them all day long, you would never hear an anchor sneering about the government <laughs> in the way that Anderson Cooper has well, done for the last four years. Well, that's, you, you, yeah. it, just, it would be unthinkable. Now, I can, I can sneer at our government on ITV because we're just considered to be a far more opinionated commercial network morning show. But for a primetime news anchor on a supposedly impartial show to be so obviously partisan – I don't think that's a smart thing for them. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think I was I was having a conversation with some of uh, my more left-leaning friends here in Dallas recently, and one of the things they brought up was the fact that a lot of them like watching people like Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon, um, and mm. and Don Lemon, by the way, you know the the the, the crew that that worked on on your show and worked with me are, are mm. now the ones that are left at CNN are mostly a Don Lemon show. So nothing bad again, and I like Don, but yeah, yeah I like but, Don. But but, but, they, but, but, Don, but Don, yeah, but Don's very well, Don is very partisan. But that's Trump. But that's what they said. And always know, has been. Yeah, I mean, they they said basically like I enjoy watching them, but. I don't get, but then I still have to do something else to get the news. Mm. So like you don't, you don't, you can't just turn on CNN uh, in prime time necessarily and feel like you've satisfied your craving for getting the news and information. It, it might be entertaining, but you still then need to go to a second place. And a lot of people, when it comes to media habits, don't have that kind of time anymore. I, I think it's more. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think it's more about the over sneering. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you start to then sneer at anyone who voted for Trump. I think that's hugely problematic for a network like CNN. And it's, it's problematic for anybody because journalists should not be sneering in America at 75 million people. That's what got, that's what cost Hillary Clinton the last election was when she called them a basket of deplorables. You know, because I think that you've got to remember these are Americans. These are American citizens. And to simply bracket them all, in the same way as a bunch of, you know, thick racist Neanderthals is very stupid and completely untrue as well. Yeah. Um, and part of the issue, I think Joe Biden has so rightly um, illuminated in that inauguration speech. He's so right about this. We've got to get past that. 
we've got to get past just thinking that anyone you disagree with is a complete moron. Um, and I think that CNN anchors, they can be opinionated, but they shouldn't be politically partisan right. on, on screen. That's the difference. You can have lots of opinions, but, you know, I, I'm very opinionated, but I defy anybody to watch what I do and ever know which party I might then vote for. Well, yeah, uh, I would never I would never want a viewer to know that. I want them to think I hold all of them to equal ferocious account uh, because I genuinely come at it from that perspective. And when I was at CNN, I never showed a political leaning in any of the quite strong opinions I ever I ever made. And I, I just think that's where. If you cross that line, there's no way back. Yeah. Well, and there, there's an intellectual honesty to it, I think, that, that yeah. does not come across with a lot of the of the media during the Trump years. Well, let me ask you about another but, thing. But because, I, have to say, I mean, my final yeah. thing I'll say now, I would say, you know, I would say 90 percent of the people that work there uh, do not show their political bias on, on camera. It's important to recognize that. You know, they've got so many great. Uh, anchors and, and correspondents CNN. It, they're the envy of the world, really, in terms of the richness of the excellence of the reporting. And I watch CNN all the time. Uh, but there's a 10% now there on screen who have decided that it's okay to show political bias. And they've got to be very careful. Yeah, I, I quibble with the 90, but let's we'll go to the next thing. We're going to end with Piers and Rupert Murdoch and Piers on Twitter and Instagram. And also the fourth watch lightning round. Six questions in 60 seconds. You had a very close relationship with Rupert Murdoch. He was uh, he, he made you uh, editor of the News of the World in 1994, uh, at a very young age. Uh, and so had a relationship going back, obviously, decades with him. Um, I'm curious about that. And as you look at Fox now, what you think Fox does in the Biden era? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, Obviously, Trump fell out with Fox and began to promote other networks, um, and it may or may not have damaged Fox in the short term. I don't know. Fox is obviously has hugely opinionated anchors in prime time uh, from a conservative bias. I don't think actually they're any more biased at Fox than some of the CNN anchors no. or uh, all of the MSNBC anchors. It's just they come at it from a right wing perspective, and therefore they attract more more vitriol. Um, but you know, I watch I watch some of the, the uh, MSNBC prime timers, and I think, my God, I mean, you, are you really going to have the the gall, the brass neck, to call? Uh, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, you know, unacceptably opinionated from a from a politically partisan perspective. Right. I mean, come on, uh, let's get real. They're they're all doing the same kind of thing, just from different political perspectives. But I think the challenge for Fox. I mean, I actually think Fox will probably have a very good four years, and I think MSNBC and CNN will struggle because they both had a business model predicated on constant Trump bashing. Well, Trump's out of the picture now. And the really interesting challenge is going to come in three to four months of reassuringly dull presidency with Joe Biden, when Fox will be ripping into him morning, noon and night, and we'll probably have plenty of meat on the bone to go out. There were quite enough in the executive orders that Joe Biden immediately brought in for Fox to have a lot of fun with uh, his expense for, uh, for their crowd. Uh, and the question is, can CNN and MSNBC resist the temptation to go back to Trump to boost what I suspect will be flagging ratings from a rather, as I say, reassuringly dull presidency under Joe Biden. Will they be able to avoid the dragon lurking in the background? Because they know Trump delivers huge ratings and huge dollar signs. And the same will apply to uh, the New York Times, to the late night hosts. You know, what are they all going to do? Stephen Colbert's career 
was saved by oh, Donald yeah. Trump yeah. and that decision to go constant Trump bashing. It was very entertaining to watch, but Trump's gone. And many people think he should be gone, gone and ignored. But are they going to have the strength of character to ignore somebody who might prop up what I suspect will be in a few months' time, ratings heading the wrong way? Right. No, exactly. I, I, I wonder about things like... Uh, you know, does he go to like the political apprentice or something, you know, that who's going to, who's he going to be the, be the kingmaker in the way that he was on the business end uh, of, of the political Well, end. he won't go away, but I think that he, I, I've got a feeling Mitch McConnell's going to try and finish him off in the Senate uh, and, and actually push for a conviction so that Trump hmm. can't run as president again. Right. And I think he'll do that to stop Trump having any ongoing real influence in the party, because as long as Trump is out there, having got 10 million more people to vote for this time and last time, you've got to have a very strong personality come through to displace him in the hearts and minds of millions of Republican voters. So I think it'd be very interesting to see what happens in the Senate. I've got a feeling from his actions and his rhetoric that Mitch McConnell is gearing up to push for a conviction to stop Trump running and to get him off the off off the sort of ballot, if you like, for Republicans. Um, but, I, you know, I think that the, the challenge for the media is how do you make Joe Biden anywhere near as interesting as Donald Trump when he's shown no sign of being able to drive ratings or circulation in anything like the same way? No, and they're all riding high right now. But I guarantee you in six months' time, when you look at all the ratings for all the cable news shows, with the exception of Fox, I bet they're all suffering. What do you think uh, Rupert Murdoch's legacy will be? You know, he's, he's been involved in so many different enterprises. Yeah, I mean, I think look, Rupert, to me, he plucked me out of a showbiz column on a newspaper and made me editor of his biggest selling newspaper in the world when I was 28. So I owe Rupert a lot. And I stayed in touch with him. I have dinner with him every now and again. He's still just as sharp as he always was. I've always thought he's a visionary genius. I don't recognize the, the Machiavellian monster, which has been the mythology which has grown up around him. He gives a lot of license to people that work for him to do what they want to do. And if it's successful, he normally lets you get on with it. His actual hands-on influence in directing things, I think, has always been massively exaggerated. Um, I think he just likes to be successful and make money. Uh, and there are lots of people like that, you know, in yeah. the capitalist world. Um, I've always found him very loyal, uh, very uh, generous to people. If he if he's had his time with you, he always looks after people very generously. He's great in a firefight. If you ever get into real trouble as a newspaper editor or host under him, everyone will tell you Rupert's always fantastic when the when the muck is flying. Um, yeah, he's not he's not perfect. He has political views which I don't agree with, and clearly a lot of people who work for him may second guess those and push those, and that can occasionally be problematic. Um, but it's his train set, and he's allowed to do that, and that's one of the beauties of a democracy. You don't have to watch Fox News. You don't have to read the New York Post um, or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but he has a wide plethora of different media entities around the world, and some of them are very serious and very impartial, and some of them are very different and very partisan and very partial. Um, he, he, I think he just wants, as I say, over his overriding ambition is always just to be successful. Right. 
Uh, Give the people what they want. And, and he has been hugely successful at it in, in a variety of capacities. All right, last thing before we get to the lightning round. Uh, you've, you've, uh, I notably, uh, uh, I, I, my claim to fame was always I got, I helped get you on Twitter. Uh, you've you got did. 7 million you followers you're there. To blame. But you're also blowing up on Instagram now. You've got, you know, millions of followers uh, across various social media platforms. So let me just, yeah. let, let's just close out with that. Uh, what's, what has social media done for you uh, when it comes to your career? Oh, it's been huge. Um, you know, I, I I write two columns a week for dailymail.com. Uh, uh, I do a morning TV show three days a week. Um, and I do various other shows. I do crime documentaries, which I interview serial killers and so on. Um, I do my life story show where I interview big names about their lives. And the one common theme is the ability to generate huge media interest through Twitter, where I have nearly 8 million followers now, through Instagram with nearly 1.4 million followers. The, the, the power to drive interest, awareness, and ultimately ratings, circulation. And as I found recently with the book, you know, it sold over 100,000 hardback copies. That's mostly, uh, you know, And that's a, that's a big number, one of the biggest selling books in the UK this year. And I was able to use my social media, which of course is free marketing, which right. is the beauty of it, to drive mass awareness of the book, constantly show people uh, the cover and famous people reading it and so on and so on, and just create a constant noise. And I think that we're in a world now where if you don't make enough noise, a lot of stuff just gets wastelanded. You know, you just don't, you're not aware of it. You have to break through the sheer volume of stuff that's out there and having a social media power and big presence is a hugely effective tool, both to driving the editorial and for marketing and for promotion and for publicity. And I, I found it, um, you know, I'm in the opinion business, really. Everything I do basically comes down to me expressing opinions and social media is brilliant for extrapolating those and creating debate and whipping things up. And sometimes I start a debate on Twitter and think that's really good for the morning show. Yeah. And we go and take it there. Sometimes I start something on the morning show and it bounces back into Twitter and so on. But I just, I feel like it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it all has flaws, social media. We all know what they are, but it, it should never be discounted as a for any journalist, I think a massively powerful tool. Yeah, it's like your little laboratory there. Uh, yeah, I, I would say you're you're yeah. better at Twitter than perhaps anyone except Donald Trump. Uh, so and he's gone. So I'm I know now you're number one. Uh, <laughs> all right, Piers. Uh, last thing here, lightning round. Where were you born? I was born in Guildford in Surrey, about an hour south of London. You're the host of uh, Good Morning Britain, Daily Mail editor at large. What is one benefit and one cost of those jobs? Uh, well, the, the cost is definitely a lack of sleep, particularly on the morning show, um, getting out of bed at 4.45. Um, the benefit, I think, is having a constant platform, both in the writing, the digital writing, and on television. What I've found is in the periods of my career when I haven't had a platform, it's much more difficult to have influence. So I think the platform that both of those things give me. Excellent. Uh, who's one person who's been a mentor for you? Well, we just talked about him, Rupert Murdoch, absolutely, uh, has been an extraordinary mentor uh, for me, and I, I owe him an awful lot. I don't think I'd have ever ended up in America 
um, without him taking that gamble on me to run one of his biggest papers. And the other mentor was Simon Cowell, who put me on America's Got Talent. Without that, I would never have done Celebrity Apprentice, where I met and befriended Donald Trump. Without uh, that uh, presence out there and winning that show, I don't think I've ever had the name in America to be considered to replace Larry King at CNN. And without the CNN experience, I wouldn't have probably come back home and uh, ended up with a morning show, which I love doing. So you can chart all this back to two people, really, Rupert Murdoch and then Simon Cowell. That's great. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? <laughs> uh, well, I would have said Donald Trump, but I've fallen out <laughs> with him now because I just think he went mad. So I'll leave around. him out of it. Um, <laughs> let me think. One person personally or professionally? Yeah. That you like who, who people would be surprised by maybe surprised i mean we probably mentioned a bunch of people here already this show but um i would i would actually say simon cowell actually who i just mentioned because he's got a very tough guy reputation particularly in america for being mr mean and he's actually not mean at all in real life he's actually a he's a pussycat and he's another one who's always been very loyal to me and taken a big gamble with me which if i ever sit down and think about how much money i've earned because of Simon Cowell putting me on America's Got Talent. It is a frightening figure, which I owe entirely to him, as he never ceases to remind me. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like something you would say. Uh, all right, who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Uh, I would have said Caitlin Collins at CNN, but she's now getting the attention she deserves. Um, I think there's a real power in the media going forward for people who can speak with clarity and sound incredibly well-informed about their brief, who can uh, deliver the news in a completely impartial way amid all the partial partisan screaming and noise. So, Caitlin, although I think I probably just missed the boat <laughs> of, of being able to say I'm discovering her. Right. All right, last one. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? They're all going to be missing Donald Trump. Piers, thanks so much. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks to Piers Morgan. Great on Twitter. Go follow him, of course, on Instagram as well. Also, his book, Wake Up. Great book. Go check that out. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can go to fourthwatch.media and subscribe for free three times per week. Comes out. And join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and subscribe to this podcast if you're just listening to it. But uh, go find it on whatever platform you like to get your podcasts and go and subscribe, please. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with Fox News' Dana Perino. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.